This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That This show that I'm recording today is an absolute honour for me because when I started Football CFB, I wrote a list of dream guests and I've been ambitious with a few of them. And the man I'm speaking to today was on this list and I never thought I would get the chance to have him on the show. So I'm delighted, without further ado, to welcome Peter Wyth, the man who scored that goal in the, in the European Cup final, Aston Villa icon. But as well as Aston Villa, played for Nottingham Forest, Newcastle United, amongst many others. An incredible talent, an incredible man. Peter, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, thank you for inviting me. Um, it's sort of... I've, I've got a message from my son, um, Jason, who I think he contacted on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, who asked me the question, would I do the interview? And um, I found out from my other son, Stephen, who's based in the UK, that Dennis had done a interview with you as well. So, um, so yeah, we're looking forward to, uh, to answer you some of your questions and give you some insight into a little bit of my career. The first question I've got for you is, is not linked to, to, to your career and, and the, the, the famous memories. The, the first question I've got is about what you're up to now because you're based in Australia, um, which is an incredible country. I've got family out there, I've not been able to visit yet, but what, what brought you to Australia? I was working in Thailand as the national coach and I was going to do a tournament in um, Brunei. And my wife normally travels with me um, when we went to tournaments, but on this occasion, I just advised that I just said, you know, maybe Brunei is not a place that you really want to see, as it were. Why don't you go and see your brother and your sister down in Australia? Um, and it was our plan, funnily enough, to retire when I was going to retire in South Africa in a place called Cape Town, which I, when I played out in South Africa, really thought it was a, f a fabulous place. So, of course, my wife went to visit her brother and sister. She said, I don't know about Cape Town, but wait till you see this place. So, when I eventually got here, which was probably 12 months later, I thought, what a fabulous uh, city, fabulous weather. Um, everything about it seemed to tick all the boxes. The only stumbling block would be to get a visa to get down here, um, which we managed to secure. Um, because at the time when I was working in Thailand, um, I used to meet up with the embassies and I met someone from the Australian embassy and they said, you know, normally we have a cutoff of 45 and you're, you're 50 at the time. So he said, you can get in with regards to a, a distinguished talent visa, which is what I eventually did. Um, and then we came down here. I came down off and on 
um, basically because of my work commitments. And my wife spent more time down here. Um, eventually she became a citizen. And then when I left Indonesia, I thought that what I had to do really was stay long enough because you had that period of time that you had to live here to get your citizenship. So we became citizens. So we, we basically was traveling backwards and forwards. So we spent, you know, um, a lot of time in the UK. I had another son who was living in Houston, Texas. So I spent time with him. Um, and then we spent time down here. So we, we fluctuated between where the children was visiting. But of course we came down here um, for our birthday. Um, but of course, what transpired with regards to the coronavirus meant that we probably was in, and we are probably in the safest place at this moment in time. So hence we've spent more time here than what we previously would have. Um, but now my youngest son is sort of, he's came down because they were working in Jakarta. So they've come down with the two granddaughters. So hence we spent more time down here than what we normally would do. In terms of your career, I have to ask you the, the one million dollar question, if it will, first. Just describe okay. what it was like scoring that goal in the European Cup final against Bayern. Well, I mean, it's it's the build-up to the to the game really, is that um in previous games that we played in, in Europe. We were we were always the underdogs anyway, because um, you know we we had uh, at the time probably only two international players that were in the team, and if you looked at Bayern Munich, they had thirteen international players in their squad, so we were massive underdogs going into the game, but we all we all had a belief in ourselves. Um, we we knew that we were a good side and we were tough to beat. Uh, we had a good defence. Um, so going into the game, we were, as I say, massive underdogs, but we were, we were quietly confident. Um, and of course, what transpired with regards to Jimmy Rimmer having to go off the field and then being replaced uh, by Nigel Spink um, was just a... <laughs> everyone probably thought to themselves, you know, everything stacked against us again. But then, you know, I always remember the first ball that he touched, Nigel, was across from the right wing, right wing, their right wing, which they hung up into the sky a little bit. And of course he come out and collected it comfortably. Um, and that was a, you know, a turning point for him because all of a sudden, wow, you know, now we're on the stage. So, you know, going into the game and the amount of chances that they had, but we we don't seem to see the chances that we had. We just see the one chance that we had, and which was to go. Um, and the build-up sort of started from defence, played up to me, then I played it out um, to, De uh, to Gordon, and then it was played forward, and then it was played into... Um, and the famous comments, as it were, from a certain Mr Moore, um, prepared to venture down the left. And then it surely done tremendously, turned it inside and played a great through ball to Tony Morley. Um, so people think to myself, you know, all these years, how do you remember that? 
Um, it's still very vivid in my mind. It seems like yesterday, but Tony just jinked one way, jinked the other, got to the position that he normally gets to and drilled across into the, into the box. Uh, the player that actually was marking me was Argan Tyler. And I just remembered, as I normally do, is take players to the near post and then come back into the centre of the goal, which is what happened. And it end, ends up that I'm free in the middle of the goal and um, hit that 35-yard volley into the top corner of the net via the post, which I tell everyone, but it wasn't. It was in the six-yard box as it got most of your goals. <laughs> so, yeah, when it come across the box, it was sort of, you know, it was a split second, but it seemed like an eternity because I was concentrating and saying all the practice that you've done, make good contact with the ball. Uh, people say to me now, you know, your left footed player, why didn't you just hit it with your left foot? But the, the position that I got my body into to come off the Argentile was that I was, my body shape was facing the goal. So I had to let it come across my body. Um, and then struck the ball really that um, it hit a little bit of a, a divot in the goal mouth and sat up a little bit but I made good contact with the ball um, people say to me why did you hit the post I said I was playing a one-two off the post but the net stopped it coming back to me so um, and of course it happens in the 67th minute um, that we score the goal and everyone is you know elated uh, and it happened in the goal that we, our supporters were behind. So it was just, you know, it was one of them sort of situations that all of a sudden, 67 minutes, uh, the rest of the time went so slow. Um, but I, I, I never had any doubt. Even when he scored the goal, I didn't think at the time, I still thought that we had, you know, I had lots of running left in me. Um, and I was just saying to players, just play it into the channels. I'll go and chase it down and we'll, you know, we'll build from there. Um, so, you know, to get to them 90 minutes was agonizing probably for the supporters, but I actually felt, you know, quite comfortable uh, in the game and still had lots of running to, to do. So, yeah, we ended up lifting the trophy and continuing the British theme, really, with regards to the championship, uh, with the cha uh, Champions League or European Cup, as it was. What were the celebrations like after the game? Because when you think about that moment now with hindsight, it's the greatest day in Aston Villa's history. Mm. Um, the celebrations were, were ecstatic, really, with regards to us going down to the... I always remember running down towards the supporters and uh, waving to the supporters and, and all the players being elated. Um, probably dropped a clanger in, in swapping my shirt with Argan Tyler at the time. Um, so I ended up swapping the shirt. Uh, Dennis says to this day he wasn't going to let... He wasn't going to swap his shirt for the simple reason as he wanted to go up and collect the cup in the Aston Villa kit, where, which I look back now and think to myself, it stems from, you know, you're playing games and trying to swap shirts, of course, with England. Um, when you used to swap shirts with England, you were given two shirts. So the first shirt that I wore against Brazil, uh, Ray Wilkins said to me, you get two shirts. Take play in one shirt till the half time, change your shirt, put another, sh put your second shirt on and then swap that. 
So you basically had your shirt, whereas with Aston Villa, you didn't. You sort of had the shirt and swapped the shirt. And it took my um, middle son, Stephen, with. Uh, it took Stephen probably about three or four months to contact Bayern Munich and ask, would they change the shirt back? Um, which is another story, really, because I ended up flying to Germany to meet up with Argentina. Um, so, you know, the celebrations were um, ecstatic until I got a famous tap on the shoulder. And if you see from the early pictures, I'm actually not in the pictures. There's only sort of, uh, I, I, the reason being is one, I've done an interview with uh, a fellow called and the second reason was the tap on the shoulder, which said to me, uh, you know, you're number nine for Mr. Witt. You have to go for drugs test. So I was like, what? So he said, you have to go to drugs test behind the, st behind the stand. So I'm like, are you serious? So he said, yeah, yeah, every player go, you know. So, so in the end, it was me and Ken McNaught were, were drawn to go and do the drugs test. So while all the celebrations were on, um, me and Ken were sitting in a caravan in the stand, behind the stand, with Argan Tyler and I think it was Dremner. So we're sitting virtually across from one another in this caravan while these people said to us, right, you have to fill this. And it wasn't like a little file like that. It was like this. And they said, you have to, you know, pass water into this. And we're like, we've run out. 90 minutes we're sweating how do you expect us to sort of fill the bottle as it were anyway ken and i seen this guy walking past with, with a crate of beer so we run out and said to the guy what are you doing with the beer so he said we're taking it to the villa dressing room and we went no you're not give it here so me and ken took the beer off put it in between us so the two german players and ourselves opened a bottle of beer offered them Argentile and Dremner, who said no, they didn't want a beer, which I suppose you could understand really, you know, being dejected. But we just said to them, look, you know, the game's over, it's finished, have a beer. Anyway, they didn't have a beer. So we ended up, Ken and myself, drank a few of them, and then the guy came in and said, who's drinking the beer? So we said, we are. So he said, well, oh, no, you're not going to tell us, the, you know, invalid test or something. But I ended up, I filled the bar, I filled this, uh, the bar first and went back to the dressing room and there was only one person in the dressing room at the time, everyone had left. <clears throat> and that was a lad called Jim Paul, who was the kit man, sadly passed away. And Jim, I said, where's everyone? So he said, well, you're very close. They were going to leave you, you and Ken here and get the bus back. And then you had to make your own way back to... <laughs> to Amsterdam. So we were like, so I, I remember going into the, to have a shower, but, but it was a bath. And I was sitting in the bath with a bottle of champagne. And I'm sitting there lying there for about, seemed like eternity, but it probably only, probably only about five or 10 minutes. And I was thinking to myself, we've just been won the biggest prize and I'm sitting here on my own. No family, no players, just me with a bottle of champagne. So, I managed to sip the champagne and then Ken arrived in the dressing room and said, you're now because we're going 
catching the coach, basically. So the only celebrations that we had, as it were, was sitting in the changing room, me on my own, and then Ken joining me. We had probably five minutes before we basically went and got on the coach. And then we got on the coach and there was, that was sort of our, the start of our celebration, whereas the players had been in lounges and had drinks and one thing and another. So, so it was a little bit of an anti-climax, but uh, we soon got back into the swing of things. In terms of the European Cup itself, what's it like when you get to hold that trophy? And the, the, the childish question I have for you, is it heavy? Um, for, the size of the, for the size of the cup, you would think it'd be very heavy, but it, it, it wasn't really. Um, but it's massive, you know, it's, it's a massive trophy. Uh, in fact, uh, Aston Villa is famous because, I don't know if you know, but Aston Villa is famous because they lost the FA Cup many, many years ago when they won it in 57, they lost the cup. And I always remember that the cup was that big. Um, and I had, I had the hold of it the last, and then everyone was panicking and the manager, Tony Bart, was running around saying, where's the cup, where's the cup, we can't find the cup. Have we lost this cup? And I, I forgot to tell them that I put it in a place that you couldn't put it in the rack above. So the safest place was in the toilet. So I sat in the toilet seat so it wouldn't topple over. So everyone was saying, I hope no one's uh, gone into the toilet when the cup's been in there. <laughs> so it wasn't, anyway. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it, was this, it was the only place that you could probably store it without it falling over. So we just put it in there. And of course the trip, we were going from Rotterdam to Amsterdam. So we, we had a decent, you know, journey on the, on the coaches away before we got back to the hotel where we were staying and we were meeting up with wives girlfriends and and family um and this and the celebration was you know was set up that we were having a meal and then <clears throat> excuse me we having a meal and then we were um basically doing what we want as it were um and it was a great night the night well went on early hours in the morning and then the following day we were, we were getting ourselves ready to fly back to um, East Midlands Airport actually we flew into. So yeah there was good celebrations, champagne was flowing, Ken McNaught and myself, uh, I said to Ken, I said you know what we're going to have to have a drink out of this cup, you know that don't you? So he said yeah yeah we should do shouldn't we? So I said come on we'll put a bit of champagne in there. Anyway we kept pouring these bottles of champagne in there. I was looking down, I said to Ken, we've got 26 bottles in here. I said, we've got to pick this up. So he went, oh, oh yeah, yeah, we have. So we picked this couple. The two of us had to pick. It was heavy then. You're talking about, was it heavy? 26 bottles of champagne, it was heavy. So we started going around and giving people drinks. And we were on the, I think we were on the second floor. And of course it, it was hot in the hotel. So we had all the windows open and my wife, Kathy, was sitting on this sort of uh, window ledge. So we'd, we'd sort of got to it and said to her, look, you're going to have to have a sip, sip of this champagne out of there. So we ended up tipping it. But of course, the European Cup has got this funny shape on it. So of course, when the champagne hit this shape, it hit it in the mouth and she fell backwards, managed, managed to grab her before she went in the canal below. So, um, 
Yeah, it was a funny experience. The people were trying to drink the champagne, but it was pouring all over them, as it were. But it was great celebrations. Um, we didn't feel in any way, um, you know, that we were the underdogs. We were the champions of Europe, and we kept the tradition going, which is what we wanted to do. Uh, we all had a little drink for Ron Saunders because we knew what he put into the, you know, to winning the championship and to winning the Europe, being part of the European Cup, didn't leave until the quarterfinals. So we had a little, you know, there was a lot of players who still had major respect for him, even though he'd left the club. Um, so we had a little toast for him as well. You mentioned Ron there and, and, the obvious question that I've been, I've always wanted to ask yourself and and the members of that team: What was it like when when Ron left? Because he left he left quite quickly, and then Tony Barton then is in charge. How did Tony handle life in charge of the club? Did he just keep things the way they were, keep the status quo? And is that why you think ultimately in the end, because it was kept in the status quo, that success followed? Yeah, I mean, it was a devastating effect with regards to Ron uh, leaving. Um, I remember my eldest son, Jason, was playing the five-side competition, uh, which I went and attended. Um, and I remember coming back to where we lived, which was like a two-road cul-de-sac. So, you know, you only go went into our road if you lived there or you visited. I remember driving back up to the to my house and all these cars being in the road and I'm thinking oh maybe one of the neighbours is having a party and they haven't invited us anyway I pulled into my driveway and all of a sudden these lights hit me and a camera was thrust into me face and the interviewer said what do you think of the news you know when I was like news in the morning that this happened uh, I remember that Ron was coming across uh, to the training session and collapsed on the floor and was down in his you know, on his haunches um, and was quickly rushed back into the uh, training facility. And then we seen him driving out in his car, driving out. So, you know, we were all worried about what, what had happened with him with regards to collapsing. So of course, when the camera, when the guy asks me and says to me, what do you think of the news? I'm thinking, what news is he talking about? You know? So he said about Ron. So immediately it's, I'm thinking in my head now, I'm thinking the worst actually. So I'm saying to him, what do you mean? So he said, uh, Ron Saunders. And I'm like, now, and he says, uh, he's resigned. And I went, oh, thank God for that. So he went, oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? So I, I didn't tell him the story, but I just said to him, I said, oh, you know, I can understand what you're talking about now, but, um, you know, I can't make a comment at this moment in time until I speak to him. So funnily enough, Ron lived around the corner from me. So immediately got back in the car, took, you know, the boys home and then went, drove around to see him and ask him the question. And he just said, I've just decided I've had enough, you know, I've, I've, my hands have been tied. I remember him saying to he said to me, my hands have been tied and not letting me manage the club as I, I, as I do. 
So knowing, you know, knowing Ronda Way, I knew him. And knowing that I worked under Brian Clough, who was similar with regards to his status, um, I was quite shocked, but probably understood what he was sort of talking about. Um, but I think the pleasing factor was is that if they would have given it to another manager, maybe we would not have won the European Cup. Because if they give it to someone else, then normally you find that new managers want to stamp their authority um, and change things around, whereas Tony just let it, you know, being part of it, he just let it go the way it was. He knew that he had senior players to the backbone of the team in Rimmer, McNaught, Mortimer and myself, right through the spine of the team is what, you know, most, most successful managers have. Uh, and he just left it the way it was. And I think that that was the biggest thing, really, with regards to just letting it flow the way it was and not changing anything. You know, the only thing that changes was maybe team meetings. Uh, the coaching never changed. Um, and that that's, was the, the pivotal thing for me, that it, it was just left the way it was as Ron had it. And that's the reason why, you know, for me, that's why we ended up winning the European Cup. The European Cup... An incredible achievement, as I've said, the, the greatest day in the history of Aston Villa. But the, the European Cup success wouldn't have happened, as you rightly said, if it wasn't for the league title win under Ron Saunders. The, the question I've got for you is, what was it like when you signed for Villa? Because you signed for a substantial fee, and I believe Ron Saunders told you you'd be playing up front with Brian Little, not Gary Shaw. Yes, I met, um, I was fortunate enough that I had a number of clubs interested in trying to sign me at the time. So we had four or five clubs who were uh, interested. Um, and of course, one of them clubs was my boyhood team and my family team, as it were, which was Everton. Um, and so I'd, I'd gone around speaking to, I spoke to Leeds, I spoke to Everton, um, and then I had, a, I had arranged a meeting to meet um, Ron Saunders. Um, so I met Ron uh, in a hotel called the Metropole Hotel, where it's obvious he was doing interviews with other, other players. Um, so he just, rather than going to the training ground and, and prying eyes, as it were, were looking, uh, he met me in, a, in this hotel in the Metropole. I can't remember what, what exactly the room, but it was like on the fifth floor, the sixth floor. So I went to, went to the room to meet him. And basically, he just outlined, he just said to me, um, I've got a decent team. Now, I'd already done a bit of research on the team and, and seen sort of who he had and how they finished the season. Um, so I'd, I'd done my research and then he said to me, he said, you know, he said, I've got a good team here. He said, but I need one player. He said, I need a final piece in the jigsaw. He said, which will be you. Um, he said, I've got a little lad who plays up front who's a little, um, he's a little genius. He said, he, he annoys me sometimes, but, you know, Brian Little and you will score goals for fun. He'll help you and you'll help him score a lot of goals. Um, and I thought, oh yeah, because I'd, see, I'd seen Brian numerous occasions playing and I thought it's a typical thing of 
in them days was a little and a large, you know, so you had a big sense for him, a little guy who's, who flitted around here and, and Brian had a bit of pace about him. So it was, uh, yeah, it was one of them sort of things. I thought, well, yeah, this could, this could work. And then I'd sort of, I was, as I say, I went to speak to Everton before I spoke to Villa and I met up with Gordon Lee, who was an ex-Villa player. Um, and he's, he sort of, it didn't get off too well to start. Once me, one, my dad said to me, can I come with you? And I said, no, you can't come with me, but I'll see you after I've finished the interview. And it was a bit of a funny interview with regards to, it was, um, he said to me that we had to wait for the chairman. So I said to, okay, why are we waiting for the chairman? So he said, well, the chairman's got to come in and speak to us. So I said, well, does he pick the team? So he said, no. So I said, does he know the tactics? He said, no. So he said, you know, I said, I need to know the background of what you want and what you see me and how you see me playing for your team. And he sort of said to me, oh, well, we've got to sell five or six players. And he mentioned five or six players that he was selling. And then he was like, yeah, but who are you bringing in if you're selling them? Well, we're going to get you as a centre forward and then we're trying to get this. this. And in the end, I thought to myself, you know, they haven't got a cat and mouse chance of winning anything with what, the way that he's presented it. So the heart wanted to sign for Everton, but the brain, I just said, the reason why I'm leaving Newcastle is to get back winning things. And I can't see me winning things at Everton at this moment in time. So in the end, it was, um, we, we, Kathy and I done a bit of analysis about, do we really want to go back to Liverpool with regards to, yes, with our family still living there, but the brain said, no, not really. I'm not going to, why are we going back there? Because we're not going to win anything. And that's the reason why I'm leaving uh, Newcastle. So that was sort of, the, it, it just, it was a no brainer for me. Ron Saunders was dogmatic in the way that he wanted to play, was dogmatic in what he needed to be successful. And he paid half a million pounds for me, um, which a lot of people thought at the time for a 29 year old player, half a million pounds was, you know, a lot of money at the time. Um, but Ron showed great faith and, you know, no, uh, Tony Barton was instigating in things that he'd done at the club for the simple reason as he was not only the assistant manager, but he scouted a lot of the players. So a lot of the players that come and joined uh, Aston at the time were, were scouted by uh, the ultimate decision, of course, is down to Ron Saunders, but he'd done a lot of the scouting for the players. So, um, yeah, it was, it was one of them in the end. I thought to myself, we, these are, we've got a chance of doing things here and I think that he's he reminded me a lot of Brian Clough in, in his approach and what he wanted from the players and yeah I signed in the end I, I think I signed on it might have been around about the same time I signed in May um, so you know we sort of just come to the end of the season in, in Newcastle I'd already told uh, Newcastle, I was leaving, and yeah, I ended up signing in May, and then in preparation for the start of the season. 
the start of the season, you mentioned the fact you're preparing for it. And another incredible, incredible season, as I say, it leads on to the to the European Cup the following season. Describe that championship year because when I spoke to Dennis, Ipswich were the team that the media seemed to fancy and and really really want in a sense to win the league. Whereas what you did with Villa, the consistency that the club showed was was incredible because people often forget that even though Ipswich were challenging, you still had Arsenal in the league, you still had Manchester United, you still had Liverpool. These teams were still there and they, these teams were still trying their best as well. But in the end, your goals helped the club along the way to, to complete a, an incredibly successful season. Well, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, we were, we were quietly confident with regards to um, the squad that he'd accumulated and what he put out. Um, and the fact that um, you're probably right. And funnily enough, it was only two days ago I watched a video, I think it was on BT Sport, which they highlighted seasons. And the highlight of the season was the 80, 81 season. So I thought, and my son, Jason, had sent me this link. So I thought, oh, I'll watch this. I'll see what it was. And we had one go in the whole of this, this half hour program, I think we had one goal that was in it. And I was like, and Ipswich had three or four goals in it. And I'm looking, oh, right, okay, who won the championship? So what I'm, yeah, you're right in what you say is that a lot of people uh, probably thought, and they beat us, of course, uh, that season. So everyone was thinking, oh yeah, you know, Ipswich are the better team, but you know, it's not measured in three games, it's measured over the season. And as you know, we had 42 games. And the big thing was, and this is a big thing that people don't realise, is how many local derbies did we have? And how many local derbies did Ipswich? And Ipswich only had one local derby against Norwich. And they lost to Norwich. In fact, I think they lost twice to Norwich. And we played nine local derbies. So local derbies around the Midlands, if you look at, you know, Birmingham, West Bromwich, Albion, Leicester, Forest, County, uh, Stoke, you know, so we had a Coventry were in the first division then. So we had a lot of local derbies, which, as you know, are always hard to win because everyone tries the best at that, that moment in time to try and uh, win the derby games, as it were. So we had sort of some very tough games, but... I think that the, probably the best comment that's, and it's still out now, is it's on Facebook and I think it's Tony Gubber who's doing the interview with Ron Saunders when we lost to Ipswich. And he started asking, you know, do you question yourself about winning the championship? And I always remember him looking at him straight in the eyes and with his cagey look said, do you want to bet against us? You know, and uh, I, think, I, I think it was Tony Gubber. He was added... Tony Gubber or John Watson. And uh, yeah, he said, looked him in the eye, just said, do you want to bet against us? And of course, the end of it, it was how many games you win that wins championships. And I think that that is the important factor of, of the games that we've won, the local derbies that we've won, um, and went on, you know, to win win the championship. And, you know, it's it's sort of, I think it probably as a bit of a thing with, you know, Bobby Robson. I think with regards to that was the ultimate aim for a, a um, provincial team 
I, you know, when I, when I look at Nottingham Forest, when I play for them and we won the championship, and you look at provincial teams, how many provincial teams, small teams like Ipswich, Forest, Leicester, win championships, and it's it's harder now, but in them days, you had to have and and to 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 be perfectly honest, to do it with fourteen players. And played as many games as what we did was a was a phenomenal achievement by a, a football club, and that's a, a phenomenal achievement by a manager to only use that many players and change positions. Because what Ron did, um, which a lot of people probably didn't realise, is he he switched players around to play in different positions. So Gary Williams, who played left back, played right back, played centre half. Des Bremner played midfield, but played centre-half. So he, he switched and brought in Eamon DC to play in, in, in enough games as well. So we had players who played in different positions. Um, okay, there was players who, you know, you wouldn't change. You know, you wouldn't. I went back and played centre-half a couple of when someone got injured, you know, until they got back up. But the majority of the time... The spine of the team was always the same. You know, it, it always was. You know, Rimmer, McNaught, Evans, uh, Dennis Mortimer, Gordon Cowens, and myself up front. So um, that's what sort of drove the team on. And I think that, um, you know, the big thing for me is getting through that season, winning the championship, and then getting my first England cap. Um, at the ripe old age of 29 as well. So, um, yeah, there was a lot going on that season. And I think there was crucial games in that season um, that we we ended up, you know, typical the Liverpool game. We played Liverpool, um, beat them 2-0 at home. And then I always remember we lost to Everton at home. And... That was sort of a wake-up call. And I always remember Ron Saunders coming in and saying, well, you thought yourself you were the best team and so on, but all of a sudden you've been dumped on your backside. Now we've got to get back, back to basics, is what he used to always say. We've got to get back to them basics. And of course, we, after that Everton game, we went in a run. And I think it was five or six games that we won on the, on, on the trot after that game. So there was crucial games that we played and got through. And Everton went to it at Goodison, Goodison Park and beat Everton 3-1 at Goodison with Tony Morley scored in the goal of the season. Um, so, and then I, I always remember our last home game was against Middlesbrough. And um, we'd been out training, come in after the training and we'd all shower and change and then go into the into the canteen, then have some uh, dinner, and then basically go home. And I'd come in and listen to all the players, and they were all like a little bit apprehensive and saying, So I said, well, What's wrong with you? So he said, Middlesbrough at our bogey side. We haven't beat Middlesbrough for three seasons, something like that. So I said, What, you've never beat them? So he said, No, no, we've never been on the winning side against them. They've always beat us. And I said, Well, that's ironic, that I said, because I've never been on the losing side against Middlesbrough. And I've always scored. So all the lads, like, oh, pecked up and sort of sat up and took notice a little bit. And of course, it was match of the day. John Watson was the commentator. Um, And to be perfectly honest, it could have been 10. 
That's how much it was. We were dominated. I mean, I had the I had the post twice. Um, we we just it, there was an incident where John Motson is making the commentary, and they couldn't get out of their heart. We kept winning, losing possession, and winning it again. And I always remember John Motson. I reminded him I was at Wembley for the playoffs and he, was, he sat on our table and I said to him, do you remember the, and he said, yeah, I don't remember the game. And I said, do you remember the comment you made about they can't get it out of their own mouth? And he said, yes, I do. He said, it was unbelievable. He said, the amount of possession that you had where they didn't do stats in them days and the amount of chances that you created and, and scored in the end. Um, and my middle son, Stephen, my goal that I scored in that game which is hours upon hours of practice of executing the, the header, um, which he knew, knew about, that you know, his dad had practiced and practiced about the header and of sort of the delivery from the cutback of Tony Morley to deliver to the far post and heading it in. And my mate who was playing centre half, uh, Billy Ashcroft is from Garston, the next village to me. And I always remember Tony McAndrew telling me the story. He said, um, we had a team meeting and John Neal was the manager of Middlesbrough at the time. <clears throat> and he said, we had this meeting and John Neal said to the, t to the whole team, he said, listen, if we stop Peter with, we've got a chance of winning this game. He said, but we're struggling, you know, centre. And Billy Ashcroft was a centre forward, but he played centre half as well. So Billy Ashcroft put his hand up and said, Boss, I'll play centre-half, I'll stop him from playing. You know, I won't give him a kick, basically. Tony McAndrew says to me, he said, after 10 minutes, you've hit the post. You've had one cleared off the line. You pulled off a save. And I looked at Billy Ashcroft and I said to Billy, Billy, are you ever going to get anywhere near him? So it was quite, quite funny the way he told the story about, you know, the meeting and about that sort of thing. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was quite funny, but it was one of them games. It was a game that we knew we had to win, you know, and it was the last game of the season. And as I say, players were a bit apprehensive, but after the game, you know, every, in fact, you probably won't, but there was a pitch invasion because it was the last home game of the season. There was a pitch invasion and everyone was telling us that we'd won the championship because uh, Manchester City had dropped the point. Uh, they were playing Manchester. They were playing Manchester. Ipswich were playing Manchester City, um, but it, it ended up that was false. You know, when we got into the change room and Ipswich had won. <clears throat> but of course, the thing that we were thinking about at the time is that we've just basically played them off the park, and the following week, Ipswich played Middlesbrough at Middlesbrough, and we're thinking. You know, what chance have they got against them? And of course, Bosco Jankovic ends up having a blinder against them and um, <clears throat> they beat them. So that was the, you know, everyone was saying it was just that game, but it wasn't because they lost the games after that as well. They had games in hand. I, you know, you remember them in them days that you didn't have to finish the league, everyone playing at the same time. So I think Ipswich had two games to play but they'd lost that game against Middlesbrough and that was it, finished the, the season um, and we won the championship. An incredible achievement in terms of winning the championship, as we say, it moves on to the, to the European Cup success that we've discussed as well. When you look back at your time at Aston Villa, 
just an incredibly successful time, not only for yourself, but for the club and it leads to England as well. I mean, just sum up that whole spell at Villa when you reflect on it now, because it was the best football of your career. It, well, it's, it's ironic, really, because uh, when I played for Nottingham Forest and we won the championship, I actually thought I was playing the best football then. And I actually thought I should have got in the England team. And there was rumours at the time that I was going to get in the England team. But of course, we all know the reason. Well, I know now why I didn't get in the England team, because it was a certain uh, Mr. Revy, who's the manager at the time. And of course, we all know that he didn't get off on with Mr. Clough. So there's no way that Brian Clough is going to recommend me to play for England at the time. Under Don Re- so that I, I thought I should have got into the England team then, but I didn't. Um, and I always remember Bill McGarry telling me that he'd spoke to the England manager and said, uh, I think it was Ron Greenwood who took over there, had said to him, look, you need to watch me, basically, because he's playing, he might be playing in the second division, but he's the best centre-forward in the country at this moment in time. So when I went to Villa, um, it was a bit of an irony, really, because... I remember having this, I don't have many dreams, but I had this dream that I was playing for Aston Villa. Um, And then when I was at Wolves, I was asked to go to America and play for the Portland Timbers. And the manager of the Portland Timbers was Vic Crow. So I thought that my dream was broken because Vic Crow was at Aston Villa. And then... So I thought, oh, well, it's not Aston Villa. It must be Vic Crow, manager, as it were. But, of course, the dream was broken again when I ended up signing for Aston Villa. And I tell people this. I say to them, I had a dream about playing for Aston Villa and putting the shirt on. So, you know, it was the longest period that I'd stayed at a football club because normally it was two years um, and, and I moved on. Um, so this time it's five years. I've spent five years there. And I spent another five years on various roles at the football club. So all in all, I was 10 years at the football club. Um, But it was such a... When we were successful at Forest, we were successful because we had a great team spirit. Everyone got on with one another. And at Aston Villa was exactly the same. The team spirit was flawless, really. And everyone worked for everyone else. and I think that's also when pe- people have, you know, as I said to you, I was signed for half a million pounds. And I always remember going to pre-season training. And it was the first time that I hadn't. Because normally I, I carry on training. But because of the, all the travelling to diff- different clubs and asking, but I didn't train in the, in the end of the season. So when I started pre-season training, um, I was normally up and running, you know, but this time that I wasn't good, I still had this ability to run, as it were. And I always remember one of the players, Dave Geddes, funny enough, come up to me and he said to me, I can't believe that somebody who's six foot two can run like you run. And I said, what do you mean? So he said, well, you're six foot two and you run all day, you just can't stop running. And I said, well, it's just in my nature, really, that... I'm a bit of a fitness freak and I, I enjoy it. So he says, you're the only player that I ever know who enjoys training. I mean, running. 
I don't just mean playing football, I mean actually going and running, um, which I, I, you know, it stems from my, when I discovered, when I played for Southport, I was working on the docks in Liverpool, and I always remember going to train with Southport for a week, and everyone said to me then, he says, you can run, you can't you? So I said to him, well, when you've got a choice, of getting up at six o'clock in the morning and working on the docks or, or doing what we're doing in the, in the fresh air and playing football, what choice are you going to have? And I said, this is what I've wanted to do all my life. So if it means running, it means running. And I love running. That's incredible. And, and what I want to ask you about, we've talked about the success with Villa. You had incredible successes you've just mentioned with Nottingham Forest. Just what was it like working under Brian Clough? Because you really worked under Clough at his peak. I know, obviously, after you left, they, they had success in the, the European Cup as well as you did with Aston Villa. But what was he like to work with? And, and crucially as well, what was how important was Peter Taylor? Because a lot of people focus on Brian, and rightly so, for what he achieved. But Peter Taylor was invaluable to him. <laughs> it's ironic, really, again, because my, um, my eldest son, Jason, who likes autobiographies, is re reading Peter Taylor's autobiography at this moment in time. And he keeps on sending me little snippets about it. Um, and you're right that uh, Brian Clough uh, is a one-off with regards to his management style uh, and the way that he does things. Uh, the invaluable part for him was Peter Taylor for the simple reason is he was the spotter, what I, what I call a spotter. And when he's reading his book and he's telling me that he's got a flat cap on and he doesn't go in the director's box, he doesn't flash around, he just pays his money, sits in a stand and watches the players that he wants to watch. And that's the way Peter Taylor worked. And throughout the book, he tells the story. And he, and he tells the story that um, I chased this player when I was at Brighton to try and sign him, but he ended up signing for Birmingham City. And I wasn't going to miss out the second time around. He said, I'd done all my homework on him. And this is what he, he says in the book. He does his homework and he says of his, and, and Jason said to me, his top signings, who he list, you know, he puts down as his top signings. And he said, you're one of the top signings that he made. He said, he signed you for 50,000 and sold you for 250,000. And he said, we got two years of great service from him and we won the championship and he scored, all, he scored the goals. Um, but we felt that he'd, he'd played his best. And this sometimes backfires on you. He said he'd, he'd, he'd felt that we'd got the best out of Peter with and it was time for him to move on. Um, so I ended up moving on. Um, the irony is really with Brian Clough is that he had to present the Midlands Player of the Year in 1981. And yours truly won the Midlands Player of the Year. So Brian Clough had to present me with the Midlands Player of the Year. And Gary Newborn, before he presented the trophy, he said to him, were you right in selling Peter with? So, he, so Brian, typical to what he does, he says, yes, I was right in selling Peter with. He said, I just dropped a clanger. I never signed him back. <laughs> Um, which is, you know, the way that he... But as a manager, um, yes, very unique, very direct. As I said to you before, with regards to him and Ron Saunders, very focused on what they wanted, how they wanted to play football, 
Um, and I think that uh, he got the best out of players. I think that that is, that is the big thing, that if you look at his teams, um, you know, you look at likes of Larry Lloyd coming to the end of his career at Coventry and then all of a sudden revitalising his career at Nottingham Forest. Kenny Burns, who I played with at Birmingham City, was renowned for being, you know, a good player, but bad off the field. Re revitalised his career. And other players that played, you know, like John McGovern, no disrespect to John. You take him out of the Nottingham Forest side, what, you know, what does he do? But he is a, an intricate part of that championship winning team and the, and the European Cup winning team. So he, he got players and he got the better. John Robertson, one of the best wingers that I've played with. And yet everyone was saying he can't play, you know. But Scottish ended up with many caps for Scotland, was a great, you know, people just didn't know how to handle him. And that was down to Brian Clough. Um, the one thing that I will say is that I, what I said is that Peter Taylor found a talent. Brian Clough managed the talent, and I, I don't think you can. The two of them are separate. You know, it wasn't sort of two of them as one. Everyone knew what Peter Taylor's role was, and everyone knew what Brian Clough's role was, um, and they didn't intertwine, as it were. When you when you had a, a time where Brian Clough wasn't at the training sessions. Um, it was a, it was a, the coach was Jimmy Gordon, and it was it wasn't anything, you know. It wasn't like oh well, um, we're going to do this intricate passing, and we're going to do this and do that. It was like play five sides, just play five sides and set plays. No, there was no you didn't just put the ball down and play. You know, we had a fellow called Ronnie Fenton who came as reserve team coach from Notts County. He got the second Notts County and come as reserve team coach. So Peter Taylor and Frank Clough used to walk around the pitch with the dog, taking the dogs for a walk. And then he pulled Jimmy Gordon and he said, what's he doing? So he says, what you, so he said, what's he doing down there? What's Ronnie Fenton doing? Because he had the reserves. He said, I don't know, I'll go and ask. So he said, no, no, you're right, I'll go and do it. So Peter Taylor then walked down, called Ronnie over, said to Ronnie, what are you doing? So he said, oh, we've got the reserves game tonight. He said, I'm just practicing set plays. No, we don't do that here. He said, just get the ball down and play. So he's like, what do you mean? So he said, we don't practice set plays. Just put the ball down near post corner for corners and set any set plays, just get it down and play. He was like, oh, okay then. <laughs> and that's the way it was. You know, it was no, it was no, I can't remember. You know, it was like Peter Shilton, you're the goalkeeper, make a save. Larry Lloyd, your centre half, head the ball. You know, Peter Woodcock, score me a goal, get me a goal. You know, anyway, um, Frank Clark, give the ball to Robertson. It was like, it was elementary stuff. It wasn't like technically, you know, you didn't do, there was no boards, no pointing out to different things. Just get on and play. And that's basically, he brought players in who could play. And that's the main thing. The sad thing was, is that, you know, I left at the time that I left and they went on to win the European Cup two years, which was unbelievable achievement. Winning the championship and winning the European Cup two. And then someone saying that Ranyani, who won the championship at Leicester, they should knight him. 
And I remember putting on Twitter and Facebook saying, there's someone who is just up the road who won the biggest art with an, a provincial team, won the championship, won the European Cup twice. He should have been knighted a long time ago. And, um, you know, unfortunately he didn't. But I think that his legacy of what he's left at Derby County as well and at Nottingham Forest has been tremendous, really. And I think that Ron Saunders, the same at Aston Villa, with what he achieved with promotion, with winning the League Cup and winning the Championship and instigator winning the European Cup. Unrivaled, really. Unrivaled. And when you mention Brian Clough and the simplicity of what he did and how effective it was, I always think Younger generations talk about Sir Alex Ferguson, rightly so, Pep Guardiola, Jose Mourinho, the list goes on. But for you, where does Brian Clough rank in the greatest managers in football history? Oh, as I've just said, with regards to a provincial team, with and there was never any guarantee we would get a full house every single game that we played. I think that in Nottingham at the time, we had a, a hard core of 20,000, 25,000. But there were some games that we played and we couldn't, we were going for the championship and couldn't fill the stadium. And I think that um, with regards to what he did with a team, um, and as I say, not vast amounts of money, um, was tremendous. I mean, I tell people that when I played and we won the championship and the League Cup, that my, I got my P45 at the end of the season and it said £9,990. People say, what, you've missed a note of somewhere? And I went, no, that's what we got. My bonuses, my sign on fee and everything was in there was less than £150 a week. So we had a team that won the championship and there was only one player, I think, at the time. Probably two, no, probably Laddie as well. Uh, but Peter Shilton was the highest paid player at the football club. He was on tons of money, really. That's where we fell out, really, because he said the two, pe- two players in his side, in his team, Brian Clough said, two t- players, goalkeeper who stops them going in the back of the net, striker who scores the goals. And I said, well, yeah, that's me. I've been scoring the goals, so why don't you pay me the same money as what Peter Shilton was getting? So it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> And he left. <laughs> yeah, so he, he, was, he was a phenomenal manager. And I think for what he achieved and what Ron Saunders has achieved was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And in terms of your career, Villa, uh, the incredible success there, incredible success with Nottingham Forest as well. But you scored goals wherever you went. And that, I mean, you look at your record, that's, that's been the case. You look at even life in the States with Portland Timbers, you look at Birmingham, you look at Newcastle, Sheffield United, you scored goals wherever you went. How do you reflect on your spells at other clubs in the game? Because it's been a unique career. You mentioned the fact you start at Southport and you're working away, then you go to South Africa, you're playing at Wolves, then you go to America. I mean, it's been a career that is very, very intriguing. And for me, getting you on, Peter... Obviously, the European Cup is what everyone wants to know about. Everyone wants to know about Ron Saunders, Tony Barton, Brian Clough. But I'm interested to ask you about the unique elements of your career going abroad. What, what were those experiences like? Because at that stage, 
in life, it wasn't commonplace the way it is now? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the, big, the big point really with regards to playing at Southport and then I sort of thought that I'd got signed for Southport, but a manager, and this probably was uh, true for most of my career, is that um, Alex Park, who was the manager of Southport, who wanted to sign me when I finished my apprenticeship, all of a sudden gets the sack. And the new manager comes in, who's Jimmy Meadows, and who doesn't fancy me. So we end up going to, you know, I went to Preston, and then I, went, I didn't play in the first team, but I went to Preston with Alan, Alan Ball Sr. And then I went from there, I went to battle. And then it was, you know, couldn't get a club. And then I had an offer to go to South Africa. And it was just pursuing a dream. And I think that that is the big thing. I don't know if you, you probably haven't read my book, but I, I, wrote, I wrote a book that um, basically highlights from, um, from where Cathy and I met as, you know, 15-year-olds to go through this, um, this passion that I had and this drive that I had to become a footballer. And most of the book reflects on how um, taking a chance to go to, who, who goes to South Africa? You know, it's one of them sort of situations. And all my family and friends, well, why are you going to South Africa? Why, you know, you're going to miss going to the pub on a Sunday? I'm like, no, I'm not going to miss the pub. I'm going to go and try and be a footballer. So, so yeah, we, we, we pursued a career in South Africa and then got an opportunity to come back, you know, to Wolves. And then I asked the manager at the time, who's Bill McGarry, could I go back to South Africa because I hadn't had that much game time and wanted to continue with my development. And that's when he said to me, this Vic Crow wants you to go to Portland. And I thought, boy, yeah. And I spoke to Kathy and she said, yeah, come on, let's go. So I think that that is a big thing, which is prevalent in the book as well, is that uh, having a supportive wife who's, you know, I know a lot of players whose wives would say, no, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But, you know, that's where we've been at. We've, we've been all over, the, all over the world and we've pursued a career all over the world. And it's, um, yeah, it's, I think it's put us in, in good stead with regards to not look. And I think the biggest thing is, is keeping your feet on the ground. And I, I think that... Um, no going above your station. Doesn't matter what you've done in, in your life, not only in football, I think in life as well, is that, you know, you know better than anyone else. Um, you're all the same. You just provide what you think is, is something that's going to make people happy. It makes you happy and it makes them happy. You, you realise the force that you have. And I think that that's now happening with regards to the professional players of today is they're realizing that they have got a, a strong voice but don't lose sight of the fact of who you are and um i've, I've said to a number of players on numerous occasions why don't you sign an autograph so they go oh it's too much trouble i said but these are the people that watch you every week just take the time and i always took time out to go and speak to people and sign autographs and um, because I remember as a youngster watching Everton and thinking to myself from the terrace and what, what would I do if I was in their position and I always remembered about 
being the one on the terrace. And so I always thought about that. And when I become, you know, a footballer, I thought to myself, oh, make time, just make time for people because they've supported you as a, as a player. And I think that that's probably uh, prevalent with regards to clubs that I've played for, is that supporters remember that sort of... Um, remember just being friendly with them and being able to talk to people and just make time for people. Um, and yeah, that, that to me is, is very important in, in your, not only your football career, but in life in general. I think that it's, uh, you, you, as I say, no, don't go above your station. Just think to yourself where you were and where you've come from and where you've, what you've achieved, you know, so yeah. How do you reflect on your England career? Because to play for your national team is every young boy's dream. You mentioned the fact earlier that when you were at Nottingham Forest, you felt you should have got the opportunity there. And then we know the politics of the situation with your control with, with Clough and, and Mr. Reavy. Um, 11 caps, you score for your country as well. How do you reflect back on that? Um, well, I, I think getting my first cap it was one of them that you always say to yourself is that if I just get one, if I just got one cap, I'd be, I'd be satisfied to play for your country and put on that shirt. And of course, um, funny enough, his Ron Saunders calls me in his office when the end, the end of the season and says to me, um, how do you fancy playing another game? So I'm like, well, so he said, do you fancy playing another game? He said, We're go- we've got to go over to went off to America at the end of the season as a celebration for winning the championship. But how do you fancy playing up front with Kevin Keegan? I was like, oh. So he said, uh, they've called you into the England squad. Um, but I told him that you really needed to play up front with Kevin Keegan because you complement one another. Um, and you're playing against Brazil. And I was like, you know, one team that I always admired was Pelé. And of course, Brazil, the way that they play football. So it was a bit an honour to play for your country, but a big honour as well to play against Brazil. Um, and that was the time when I, you know, went into with the squad and making my debut at Wembley, putting on the shirt for the first time. Um, and it was oh, it was just. I was a little bit overall. I remember doing my full badge on my coaching certificates. And I remember them, they played, a, we were all in this room, auditorium, and um, the director of football said, oh, we're just going to watch a, a, a clip. We're going to watch this clip. Um, and we're going to just talk about it. So I'm sitting there with all these guys around me, and, I still, and the clip's England versus Brazil. And it was me giving the ball away like four or five times. And I was like, I'm shaking my head. And I was saying, I was like, a, I was 29, but I was like a kid. I was like, just overwrought in the town. And in the end, it was only took, you know, talking to for myself and saying to myself, what the hell are you doing? Just relax. You're like, you know, a kid in a hot tin roof. Just start playing how you play. And then it, t- it started to turn around then. And I started to play the game that I, um, that I, I knew that I was, uh, I could play. Um, and then the, the final thing was, is that we lose in one nil. Zico had scored a goal. Um, and then we get it, we're pushing for an equaliser. 
and then uh, I think it's Kenny Sanson who ends up in the attack and heads the ball down and I volley it across the goalkeeper and it hits the post and as he hit the post I thought it's going to hit the post and go in but he hit the post and rolled all the way along the line hit the other post and then went out for the goal kick and I was thinking how the hell did that not go in there but um, you know that was the but I think the other thing was is that um, you know playing the games that are played and then finally when it comes to the World Cup is is getting into that squad for the World Cup in 82 in Spain and felt really that we had the side capable of winning that tournament. I think that we had a, a very good side, although Keegan was injured and Trevor Bruchen was injured until the, the game against uh, West Germany. And I think that um, we had, we had, I thought, a, a chance of winning it. The only sad thing was at the 82 World Cup was because I didn't get a game. I didn't get, I was on the bench for all the games except for one. And I didn't, I didn't get on, on the pitch. And I think that of all the games that I should have got on the pitch, which I wasn't on, was uh, against Germany because we just needed to beat Germany. Germany had to draw. And as we know, that's all they do. They just go through the, the motions of, well, we only need a draw so we don't have to chase the game. And it, and it was, I felt it was at a stage where they needed someone to go and roughen them, roughen them up a bit. Um, but it wasn't to be. We sadly got, um, we didn't lose a game in the whole of the tournament. We never lost a game. And yet we, you know, we didn't go through on goal difference. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was a sad ending to the World Cup. But it was great. I, had, I ended up, I only made, you know, 11 appearances. But I actually was involved in the, in the, with the team until um, I played my last game. And funnily enough, of all the people to call me up for the game was Bobby Robson. And I I was off the scene, but he didn't have a he didn't have a centre forward. And I got a, it's funny because I was in Blackpool with my family, and when I got back home on a Sunday. The phone wouldn't stop ringing, and I was like, "Why is that?" So I said to Kathy, my wife, "I said, answer the phone." So she answered the phone and she said, "It's a reporter." So I said, "What does he want?" So he said, "He needs to speak to you urgently." So anyway, I picked the phone up. He said, "Bobby Robson's been trying to get you for the whole weekend. Where have you been?" So I said, "I've been to Blackpool with the family." So he said, "You need to ring him." So I rang him, and he said to me. You know where have you been? And I told him, explained to him, and he said, "Can you get down to the to the hotel, West Lodge Park? It was in London." So I said, "Why?" He said, "I'm coming into the squad." He said, "I haven't got it sent forward." He said, "I know you've been out of the scene." So, so anyway, I went down. It was um, a qualified against Hungary, and um, that was where I've scored my one and only goal, really. But it's it's the only one is. I played the game and scored the goal, and we won 2-0. Uh, Trevor Francis scored the first goal, which I had a hand in. Um, and I remember coming off the field and going into the... And he had a big communal bath there. And I went and blow, to blow my nose, and my face blew up like a balloon. So, it's like, so all the lads were like, no. So I called the, call the uh, physio in. He said, what? I said, oh, I remember getting a bang in the face in... 25 30 minutes so he said oh you're gonna to have to go to hospital so i went to hospital so turns out i had a depressed fracture of the cheekbone 
And I said, oh, I hit my thumb as well. And I broke my thumb as well. So I'd had a broke and I played on. Played on to the end of the game. We won the game. And I always remember him coming to the hotel room. Bobby Robson, he said, you know what, son? He said, I watched football all my life, he said. He said, but your performance. And to find out you've got a depressed fracture to the cheekbone and you've got a broken thumb and you just carried on, never said a word. He said, if we're go- he said, if we're going to the European Championships, you will be coming with us. He said, I don't care. He said, you will be coming with us. Because <laughs> we lost the next game to, Dem- uh, to Denmark and we didn't go in the end. So that was the end of my sort of international career. But wouldn't change it for the world. It was four years of sheer enjoyment, meeting other players, um, just being involved was... You know, tremendous, tremendous. We talked about your incredible playing career. We've talked about your international career. In terms of managerial career, you had a spell with Wimbledon, but you're most well-known in management for managing the Thailand national side, as you've talked about. Very successful there as well. Um, also managing Indonesia and also managing in, in, in the Thai league itself. What was it attracted you to managing abroad? Um, well, I suppose it's a bit similar to my playing career, is that opportunities. Um, I was at Aston Villa at the time, I was head of European scout. Um, and then I really, I always wanted a coach, I always wanted a managing coach. Um, and this, I didn't know who it was, but there was an opportunity to coach in Asia, I just said Asia. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd spoken to the FA because the FA were involved in it. And they said, oh, yeah, there's a team in Asia that want a, you know, want a, uh, a manager. Um, so apparently they were given a list of managers. So they went through all the list of potential managers. For, and they went, apparently mine was W, so mine was the last on the list. So they went through and went, mm, yeah. Mm. And this is a, a lad called Brian McCarr who was involved in the um, with Thai FA he said we went through went through went through and then we come to the last one and it was you he said and we looked at them he said we want him so they were like well you've got to go through no 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 we want him that's who we want we want to interview him so it was after the debacle of Thailand and Indonesia playing in a Thai Cup game where both teams didn't want to score they didn't want to win the game so they both of them scored own goals, kicked the ball in their own net because they wanted to play against the opposition, which was Vietnam. And they didn't want to travel, you know, make a journey of about five hours, six hours. So they, they were at rock bottom. Thailand were at rock bottom and the supporters were giving them plenty of... Uh, so they needed to be lifted, as it were. And they had the Asian Games coming up in, in Bangkok. So I, I remember going for the interview and the, and the guy from the FA said to me, look, they can't offer you the job. He said, they'll interview you and then we'll go through a process. So we'd done the interview. I think the interview was 10 minutes into the interview and he said, when can you come? So I was like, I looked across and I'm, what do you mean? So he said, when can you come? Because we need to prepare the team for the Asian Games and we're getting to October now. I said... I'll come whenever you want me to come. 
So cut a long story short, I get the job. I've then got six weeks, well, no, I've got five weeks to prepare the team for the Asian Games. And um, I, had to, I didn't know any players. So I basically had a, a squad of 40 players that I, they'd all recommend. These are the 40 players, make a choice from the 40 players to whittle them down. So it was a you know hard process, but we, we did it. And it was hard work. It wasn't sort of, you know, it was more morning, noon and night. You were, you were doing the job um, to whittle through. But we ended up, we got the team. We ended up playing and they said to me, look, if you get through the knockout stages, first round, you know, that'll be good enough for, you know, the people that we've basically done a good job, as it were. So we get through the first round, then get through the second round, then we get to the quarterfinals and we're playing against South Korea, who's one of the teams that has tipped to win the tournament. Um, so we've got a full house. The stadium is absolutely rammed. People are sitting everywhere. They couldn't get tickets. So they just sneaked the way in and they built the stadium just for the Asian Games. It was called Reggie Mangala. And I just remember coming out and the atmosphere was electrifying. And all the players were putting all these things on the on their heads, you know, tie flags and things like that. So they look at me and I said to him, cool, and then put them on. Because if we're all doing it, we're all doing it together. Whatever we do, we do together. So I end up getting these flags put on my cheeks and on my head. And uh, of course, we go out to play the game. We get a player sent off in the, I think it's the 38th minute. I get my centre forward sent off. We manage to score. And then um, we're winning 1 0. And there's, I don't know, probably about five minutes to go concede a free kick, the player gets sent off. So we get two players sent off um, and they score from the free kick. So now I'm shouting to my staff because I'm thinking about the rules. I'm saying to please tell me this is a golden goal. So they, they're looking at me and saying, well, I said, is it a golden goal? Is this tournament a golden goal? So they're saying, yeah, it's a golden goal. I said, we'll win this. I said, we'll win the top. So they're all like, you've only got nine men. Anyway, I have a team talk afterwards. My manager who's standing next to me, is he's, he's translating for me. And he's saying to me, the hairs are going up on the back of my head with the team talk that you give and how we were going to win the, win the game, basically. Um, and of course, they did. You, you know when you give that plan and you say to them, this is the plan that we're going to win the game. And it, and it works. But it didn't work to a certain degree because instead of, he went out to the wing instead. So the guys on the touchline, I had a midfield player who did hit it with either foot. So now we're playing for the golden goal. So I know we've got to, because if we go to full time, you know, if we go the full th uh, 30 minutes, we ain't got a cat nail chance with that. But anyway, we get a free kick. We're on the touchline on the, on the far side of where I'm standing. The guy touches it to this, midfield player called Tawan um, um, and he just unleashes this shot that's still rising into the net so the stadium absolutely erupts unbelievable um, and that was my you know my six weeks as it were and I was only supposed to be there for 
six months, but ended up being the way I was. We ended up staying there for five years and being successful in the five years. So I think that that was in, in my management sense of the world is that was a tremendous achievement with regards to, and I think still to this day, I'm the most successful national coach that Thailand have had. Um, but it was it was hard work for five years, but it was well worth it, well worth it. And then I left there and then went to Indonesia um, to do a job with Indonesia and felt that I'd done a, a good job there as well. Um, but you know, it, it's always one of the sort of situations I always wanted to go back into the into the league and manage over there, but the opportunity never arose really. So I, I ended up um, doing what I did in Thailand and Indonesia, and then went back to Thailand again with a local team. Um, but then it got to the stage where I had to I had to stop. Um, but people say to me to this day, you know, you're 68 years old, but you never say never in football. I always think that I'm still, you know, still got a passion. I've still got the same passion now as what I had as an 18-year-old. So it's not changed. I've still got the same drive. I've still got the same ambitions. I've still got the same, you know, hungry, hunger, as it were. So you never know in football. You never know. You never know indeed. And, and to see you back in the game um, would be incredible. Before I let you go, Peter, just a few quick-fire questions for you. Best players you played with? Best players? Well, to, I have this thing, you know, with regards to um, all the teams that I've played for. So it, it gets to the stage where I just try and isolate to teams that I've played for. But you look at success, like me and Woody, me and Tony Woodcock playing up front together, um, we we sort of set the the league on fire at that time. We were sort of dynamic duo, as it were. And then the same with regards to Aston Villa. It was supposed to be Brian Little. Unfortunately, it was a young man got thrust into the limelight in Gary Shaw, and we we forged a great partnership together and played really well together. So you know you look upon that and and see the, the them players. Um, there was lots of driving players that influenced your career, what you played with. Um, but you remember sometimes, you know, like a lad called Alan Shoulder, who played with me in Newcastle, reminiscent of myself coming out off the docks in Liverpool. You know, Alan Shoulder comes out of the, the mines in Newcastle and makes a name for himself playing up front with me. Um, so them sort of things hit you as well, you know, about them players that you've played with. Toughest direct opponent? Um, there's been quite a number of... So I, would, I always remember an incident that happened with me when I was at Wolves. I played against Manchester City Reserves and there was a guy called Dave Watson who was playing centre-half. Um, the Dave Watson who played for Manchester City and played for Sunderland. And I remember accidentally cutting it. People say, accidentally, you never... I said, yes, it was. It was an accident that we clashed heads and he split his eye open. And I always remember saying to him, I said to him, Dave, Dave, you split your, your eye. And he just turned and looked at me with them eyes and just glared at me. And I was like, oh, I think I might be in trouble here. So you end up reminiscent of the tackle, 
you end up in row Z. <laughs> um, so Dave, Dave Watson was, uh, to me, I, and when I got to know him with the England setup, you know, it reminded me of myself a little bit because he was, uh, he was quite <laughs> gentle into, he was into um, his rock and roll, hence the hair. But Dave Watson was, you know, to me. There's been other ones, but I, he sticks out in my mind. Most underrated player you played with? Underrated. Uh, probably little Eamon DC, who sadly passed away. Eamon was uh, a very unobtrusive Irishman um, that didn't drink. Unfortunately, he was the only Irishman that I ever known who didn't drink. So we used to <laughs> rip it a few times. I remember us having a Christmas party over at uh, the Belfry and we, Eamon had come over. So I said to him, oh, come on, Eamon, it's Christmas. We're having a Christmas party. Have a drink. Have a Guinness or something. Oh, no, I don't want to. I, I, I not have a drink. So I said to him, right, okay. So I said, I'm going to get you a drink because I know you like fruit, fruit juice. So he says, uh, oh, yes. So I went and got him a jug of sangria. Um, but it was a potent jug of sangria. So when he got home, his landlady rang me and said, what have you done to Eamon? I says, I haven't done anything to him. He said, well, he can't talk. He's... <laughs> So we, it was probably the first time at the Christmas party we got him drunk. And then the other time was we won the championship, of course, and we're on the bus going down to the city, to Civic Hall, to have our presentation, you know, present, presented with our medals. And then we're on the bus going back to Villa Park. And I said to Eamon, I said, so what do you think of your medal then, Eamon? So Eamon said, I never, I never got a medal. I didn't think I should go up. I didn't. So I said to him, don't be stupid. So I went and told Ron Saunders and Ron come up to me. He said, Eamon, where's your medal? So he said, I, I, I didn't get a medal. He said, I didn't think I would. He said, so he started crying and he was crying his eyes out because Ron Saunders had given the medal and said, you deserve the medal. You played enough games. So he, he was, he sticks out in my mind as one of the players. Lovely guy. Lovely guy. Biggest character you played with? Biggest character. There's been many of characters that I've actually played with. I always remember from my Southport days, there was a lad called Eric Redrobe, who was a big, he was from Wigan. And he was built like a, he was built like a, a, a rugby player, not a footballer. Shoulders were on him like this. And he was, he was the centre forward at the time and he took me under his wing a little bit you know and said to me you know you, you've got a chance of making this game and, and he just sticks out in my mind as this character of you know who, you could you could just see him running through defenders and just people trying to dive on him and he'd just be brushing to one side because he was such a strong built like an ox you know um, so he 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 so, but there's loads of others, but he sticks out in my mind of when I first started to play the game of someone who just takes it under his wing a little bit. Brilliant. And um, in terms of stadiums, you've played at most incredible stadiums in, in the UK and also abroad as well. What would you say was your favourite stadium to play at, a ground when you went there? You just thought, I'm going to score today. Wembley. Just loved Wembley. I think that... Um, when I was growing up and um, all my mates were around Everton, Liverpool supporters, we used to go to stand on the Gladys Street end 
And I always remember saying to them one day, I'm going to play here. I'm going to play at Goodison Park. So they're all like, yeah, all right, you. So I thought it was a bit of a joke. And I said, not only that, I'm going to play at Wembley. And they were all, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, when I played at Goodison Park and scored in the Gladys Street End, I could just see them all making signs and gestures at me because they were Evertonians. <clears throat> um, and the same at Wembley. I remember, you know, first time I played at Wembley Stadium, I thought, what an atmosphere. And I always, I thrived on, people say that I've played with players who's frozen on the day, you know, who just can't, when they comes to the pressure, they just can't take the pressure. Um, where I was probably a little bit, although I come through like Southport and playing and, and them sort of environments, no disrespect to them. Um, the bigger the occasion sometimes, and the bigger the stadium, the more people that was in the stadium. I thought, yeah, yeah, now we're, we're gonna we're gonna play. But there's a lot, there's, you know, I, I always remember playing against my sort of idol, boyhood idol was Pele. And we played Pele at, uh, in New York on probably one of the worst pitches that you could ever, and the worst stadiums that you could ever play in. And they painted, it was like, it was brown. It wasn't even grass. So they painted it because it was going on television. So they painted it with green paint to look like it was a pitch. And of course, half time come and Pele wouldn't come out. So they were all saying, what, what's wrong? He'd never spoke English then, so he had an interpreter. So he said, well, what's wrong, what's wrong? He said, I've got gangrene on my leg. My leg's all green, I've got gangrene, I'm not playing. I'm gonna get, so he said, no, it's paint. We painted the pitch, so you've got paint, not gangrene. So that was one of the, but just a privilege being on the same pitch as him. It was tremendous. So the stadium wasn't the best stadium, but I just remember playing against Pele. So. Is there a particular stadium for you that was a bogey ground? Because I know Alan Smith, who played for Arsenal, he never ever scored at Old Trafford. And he always says, when people say to him, Old Trafford's my favourite ground, he always says, oh, no, not for me. He says, it's a great ground, he says, but I just don't have fond memories here. Um, I think there's a, there's, well, with regards to... Um, I remember going to Millwall, playing in Millwall. Well, I remember going with Forrest. And the, it was in the winter, then half the pitch was soft and half the pitch was frozen. Uh, so in the first half, if you played in that half, you wore studs. And in the second half, you had to wear rubbers or flats to play in the other end of the pitch. Um, and I remember that you used to go over, if the ball went out to play over by... Because theirs was a bit different. Most stadiums were behind the goal, you know, to support. But theirs was sort of to the left. It was called the shed, as it were, on the left hand side. And you had to walk probably 20 yards to go and retrieve the ball. And when you come back, you were covered from head to foot. You know, it's just, it was one of them grounds that, I mean, it was one of them grounds that the worst ground to get to. So you've got to drive through London traffic to try and get to that stadium. And it was, oh, it was just an horrendous, to me, it was an horrendous sort of stadium to get to. It sticks out in your mind about getting to the stadium, playing there and the supporters and the hassle that you get. One of the worst grounds that I've been to, right, 
um, which you probably will appreciate. I remember I was I was going to watch a game, but I was looking at a couple of players. Is um, I went to Ibrox Rangers Celtic match, and I've been to you know Manchester derbies. I've played in derbies in Birmingham Villa. There's many you know Manchester Manchester City Liverpool Everton. That was the worst atmosphere I've ever, ever experienced in the, in the stand, feeling uncomfortable. That it was just, it just seemed like a hatred between one another. And it was like, it was just, honestly, it, it was an eerie atmosphere that I've never experienced in my life before. And yet when the game was over, it was totally different. It was like walking out of the stadium, it was like, this isn't the, you know, it wasn't like the fans were waiting for one another to fight with one another or anything like that. It just seemed like in the stadium, it was just this atmosphere, just, it was hard to, I can't describe it. It was just an airy atmosphere that I've been in. Um, yeah, that was probably one of the ones that sticks out in my mind. Last question for you, Peter. Thank you for being so generous with your time. 40 years since Aston Villa won the league title, AV40 doing an incredible job, happy to promote the cause and, and help um, promote that. If you want to get a book, go to www.av40.com. But the last question I've got for you, you've talked very openly about your career in management and players from your era and players now. What advice would you give to any young players listening? Well, it's, it's the advice that I always give to even to this day, is that I say to him, look, just, you've got to enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, you're doing the wrong job. You've got to, you know, love what you're doing. It, this is not, you don't, don't look at this as a job. Look at this as something that you love to do. And I think that that, that really, uh, to me, epitomises um, playing football. You play football because you love the game. Um, you know, there's people on the terracing who give the right arm to swap places with you and be, you know, uh, a football player. So grasp with both hands and just enjoy it and give your all every single game. Don't think to yourself, oh, yeah. come off the field and you think to yourself, well, I could have given a bit more. Never, ever think that. Think 100% every single game that you play. You might have times where you're not playing your best, um, but just give 100% and that'll, you know, stand you in good stead as it were. But all right, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you and your family all the very best for the future. And you mentioned about even though you're 68, you would still like to get back into football because that desire's there. I hope that opportunity arises for you because having people like yourself involved in football, for me, is what it's all about because you played in an era of football that I think so many fans still miss because the guys like yourself giving me for instance 90 minutes of your time today that just sums up that era of football down to earth but incredible quality as well all right thank you very much <laughs>